I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 1 as we begin a new series in the book of of Psalms. And uh, we're not going to be covering all of them. That would take us several years, but we are going to cover about a dozen of them between now and the end of November. And we begin with Psalm 1. Uh, The Psalms are one of the most beloved parts of the Bible. Uh, They've been a blessing to God's people ever since they were written. Uh, One commentator wrote and said, uh, the Psalms have been used in the worship of God more consistently and more frequently than any other portion of the Bible. Um, I, I love that they're found right in the middle of the Bible. I remember being a young kid in Sunday school. It was a, a rather liberal church I was a part of, but they said, you know, you can take your Bible, go right to the middle of it, and you'll find the Psalms. And that's, I love that they're right in the center. Um, they say you can find every emotion in the Psalms. One of my professors wrote a book called The Psychology of the Psalms, where he goes through and identifies many of those, or, or all of those emotions that he could find. Um, David and the other authors pour out their their feelings at at, at the same time as they're reflecting this dynamic and life-changing friendship they have with God. The psalmists uh, confess their sins, they express their doubts and their fears, Uh, they ask God for help when they're in trouble, they worship, they praise, and they, they share their honest struggles with God, and we can allow that honesty to, to spur us on to a deeper and more genuine friendship with God ourselves. In Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul writes and says that we're to work out our own salvation with awe and wonder. It doesn't say we're to work for our salvation. Um, we can only work something out if we already have it. The idea of working out in awe and and, and wonder means that we're supposed to take the spiritual grace that we've received in Christ and and unite with him by faith. And then we're supposed to work that into every part of our lives, every part of our identity, in our relationships, in our behavior, in, in, in our life. It should touch everything in our life. You have this on your outline. It was D.L. Moody who said the Bible is not given primarily to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Um, Show of hands here. How many of you remember or watched uh, growing up the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? Well, I think, yeah, maybe you've heard of them. So they were this low-budget kind of Japanese superhero show that was dubbed, uh, I think, kind of rather poorly, into English. And the key to the show's ability were these, uh, these kids, they, they would morph. And they were normal teenagers, but as needed, they could access a power beyond themselves and become martial arts heroes for justice. Um, their rallying cry in a time of crisis was, it's morphing time. And they would transform into this ability to do extraordinary things. Well, it's not just kids who want to morph. Uh, The desire for real transformation, I think, is a part of every human heart. 
That's why we, uh, that's why people enter therapy. That's why they uh, join health clubs, <clears throat> usually for the first week of January and then that's over. Um, that's why they get into recovery groups or read self-help books or attend seminars or make New Year's resolutions, which usually last about as long as a gym membership. So, uh, in fact, the possibility of transformation is the essence of hope. And psychologists say that one belief that destroys relationships the fastest is the belief that another person cannot change. The word morph actually comes from one of the richest words in the New Testament, uh, the word morphu, which, which the, is really the inward and real transformation of the essential nature of a person. Paul used the word when he was talking to the Galatians about Christ being formed in them. And Paul, again, in Romans 12, uh, uses the same word when he talks about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so what Paul was saying is that, and this is on your outline if you're taking notes, I hope you are, that ordinary people can receive power for extraordinary change. Paul was saying, hey, it's morphing time. And this is what we're invited to practice in Psalm 1. This psalm gives us insight into what happens when we meditate on the word of God. Uh, the first psalm serves as a gateway to the entire book of Psalms by saying if you want to worship God genuinely, then you need to embrace all of his word and, and spend time letting it transform you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, on your outline, Psalm 1 promises blessings to those who love God's word, and the goal is to whet our appetite to take in and think deeply about every word of every psalm. So follow along in your Bible as I read Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, uh, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, we're going to go through this psalm verse by verse, um, but we're also going to focus on the call to meditate on God's word. So today there's a need for deep people. And meditation is one of the keys to making us deep people. Meditation will allow us to live more and more in the power uh, of the spirit, a power that is beyond us. And so the primary requirement, and this is on your notes, to practice meditation is a longing for God. 
It's like what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, is the deer pants for streams of water. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? So as the life of a deer depends on water, this psalmist was saying, uh, so our lives depend on God. And the psalmist felt distant from God and he wouldn't rest until he had a restored relationship with God because he knew that his very life depended on it. So do you know that your very life depends on God? It's like Nathan said when he introduced the song, we can live without food, we can live without water, we can live without air. And yes, our physical bodies will die, but as Christians, because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we go on living forever. We can't live without Jesus. Do you thirst for God? That's all you really need, I think, to begin meditation. You know, there are a couple of difficulties, though, as we come to uh, think about meditation. One of them is philosophic and one is practical. <clears throat> the philosophic difficulty is that we live in a very materialistic world. And so the question is, can we reach beyond the physical world? As Christians, we say absolutely we can. The answer is yes. The practical difficulty is that sometimes we don't know how to meditate. And we're gonna talk about that, but knowing the mechanics of how we meditate doesn't mean we're going to do it automatically. So there are also two errors, two difficulties and two errors. One error is thinking that it's possible to attain true spirituality by meditating, meditating completely on our own, in our minds, nothing else. It only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the second error is to think there's nothing I can do. But that's why we do meditation. That's why we practice any discipline of the Christian life that we practice. The second error uh, is, is just that, nothing I can do. So think of meditation as a path. It's a path that, the path itself doesn't produce change. But it, it only puts us in the place where change can occur. Uh, and our work is to place ourselves in the way of Christ and invite him to come in and work in our lives. So this is what it means to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling with awe and wonder. So think about this. Uh, look at the quote. It's on your outline from John Ortberg. He says, if the Bible were to completely fulfill its mission... <clears throat> Our minds would be so transformed, so filled with thoughts and feelings of truth and love and joy and humility that our lives would become one interrupted, uninterrupted series of acts of grace and moral beauty. Every moment would be a miniature reflection of life in the kingdom of God. That's the ideal. Uh, we're never going to get there, but that's the ideal. That's the way Jesus lived. That describes him. So the first word of the psalm is blessed or blessed. And in Hebrew, it's a much richer word than it is in English. It's the idea of total fulfillment, total happiness, complete and absolute well-being. And how do we get that? It comes to the person who learns to meditate on the law of God, the word of God. 
The word blessed in the Hebrew is the word asher, the name of one of Jacob's sons, and it's, it's plural. And so literally, oh, the happinesses, oh, the blessednesses of the one who meditates on God's word. The, the point of the rest of verse one is that we move gradually into sin and disobedience. It, it, it doesn't happen in an instant. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. So there's a downward spiral. And there's three negative description of, uh, descriptions of a man or a woman who settles into these stages of sin. Uh, he walks, they walk, they stop and stand, and finally they sit down. In other words, first they're influenced by sinners as they walk, then they're, they're identifying with them as they stop and stand, and then when they finally sit down, they're spreading sin to others through laughter, through sarcasm, whatever it might be. So as you listen to sinners, you want to be like them. It's like you're meditating on sin, although we don't call it that. You begin walking in the counsel of the wicked. So here's a question. Who is verse one describing? Is it describing, it's not describing Moses or Abraham. <clears throat> it was written in the time of David. So you look at David and all the kings after him. It doesn't describe any of them. This is describing one who's never sinned. And that's Jesus. One commentator writes this, amazingly, the very first verse of the Psalms points us to Christ. Ancient Jews who read this Psalm would recognize that David and the kings after him did not live up to the ideals of this opening Psalm. Now that Jesus has come, we can see that he is the only one whose sinless life and delight in God's word has earned him God's blessing. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. But there's joy when we refuse to listen to those who try and discredit uh, or ridicule God. And when we instead focus on the word of God and meditating on it, making it a part of our lives. And then look at verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. When we read the law, as Jesus explains it, say in the Sermon on the Mount, how do you respond? It, if, if you're just looking at the words and saying these words mean that I fall short, it leads to despair to read the law. That's why Paul says the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. It, it's supposed to create despair in us. The only way to delight in the law is through Jesus. It says in Hebrews chapter 10 that Jesus delighted to do God's will. And the law was written on his heart. Jesus took the curse that our disobedience deserved. And that's the only way that we can delight in the law is through Jesus. The law here is broader than the Ten Commandments, broader than the first five books of the Old Testament. It's all of scripture, it's all of the stories, all of the laws, they're all there for our instruction. 
the more we know of God's word, the more resources we have available that when we seek to understand who God is, what he has to say to us. We're gonna talk about that more, but the person who is blessed and who is a blessing is described in verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. So the streams of water are a picture of the provision of God for spiritual blessing. In other words, some trees may wither and die, but the believer in Christ who abides in Christ and who abides in his word stays fresh and green and fruitful his entire life. That's the leaf that does not wither. And so on your outline, we can't ignore our root system or we will begin to wither. Even in the winter, when most trees don't have leaves, the roots are going down deep. The tree is getting thicker. It is growing. And when the fruit does come, it's bigger and juicier. You know, we have someone in the church who has family in Central Valley, and when they go visit them, they bring back, they'll bring back peaches for us. And they're the kind of peaches that you have to hold over the sink to eat because they're dripping. They're so juicy and yummy. They're, they're fruit that I know takes a lot of water to produce. But they're in the right place. In other words, if you learn and practice this discipline, this isn't a promise that everything will always go well in your life. Hard times will come, but, and, and you won't always be successful. I think of a dear friend to many of us, Steve Norman, uh, whose widow was in the first service, whose, Steve's leaf did not wither. Even uh, talking to him after a, a hard chemo, um, getting chemo, he would still be uh, talking about the word and, and, and drinking deeply from the word. His leaf did not wither. He was drinking by the streams of water, even in the hardest times. And so think of, of meditation as taking a particular truth from God's word and pressing it down into our hearts until it catches fire. <clears throat> The idea of meditation might be scary for some. Think of Eastern meditation. That is not what this is at all. In fact, look on your outline. The meditation we're talking about is not Eastern meditation, which is emptying the mind. <clears throat> this is the opposite. This is filling the mind with God's word. Eastern meditation seeks to detach us from the world. Christian biblical meditation makes us more aware than ever of what God is doing around us. It sharpens our spiritual perception. <clears throat> Maybe we're only content to hear from God secondhand. Uh, we want to hear what others come up with from God. Not do the work ourselves of meditating on the word. And maybe we have the attitude of the children of Israel who said, uh, to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. I think probably we're all guilty of that at some time or one time or another in our lives. 
A normal tree can't handle life without some source of water. But for this tree, it doesn't matter how long or how severe the dry season is because this tree has, the roots have direct access to the water. So what does this mean for us? It means that circumstances don't matter, they don't need to matter because it's meditation that gives us this direct access to God. It's making his word come alive in our lives. And even in the most difficult circumstances. I love the next quote on the outline by Elizabeth Elliot. Joy is not the absence of trouble, it's the presence of God. That's joy. And that means you can have great joy when there's a lot of trouble. Who's without trouble? We all have trouble. But when we have God, we will make it through whatever happens to us, whatever the world throws at us. In other words, when all the sources of water dry up, it's okay, we will make it because we're planted by the streams of water and our roots go down deep as we're meditating on the word of God. Uh, you've got this next little thing on your, on your outline. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and regarded as many to be America, one of America's greatest theologians and incredible mind. And he preached his first sermon at age 18, and this was the outline of his first sermon from Romans 8. He said, if you're a believer, bad things will turn out good. The good things we have, based on God's word, will never be taken away. And the best things are yet to come. Wow, that should give us an excitement as we look to the future and what God has for us. And especially look to the hope of heaven. And so, look at these last three verses. These are, the, are those who don't invite God's word to change them. Not so the wicked, it says in verse four. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the, wicked, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The chaff is the covering of a seed and the husks are all that's left. And so here's the warning for us all. We're all sinners. We all have chaff in our lives. We all have a superficiality about us. That's the chaff. And and we want to be deep people. We want people to think well about us. And the way to become the most authentic version of, of you is through the word of God. To become all that God wants you to be. And we become people of substance that way as we, it's through the word, as we meditate on the word. So here's another analogy that one author gave about uh, about meditation. One could say that meditation is to the word of God what digestion is to food. Food is of little use if we fail to digest it well. Nutritionists tell us that the digestion process that takes place after swallowing is not enough to process our food completely. If we want to maximize the nutritional benefit, we must first chew it well. How many times did your parents tell you that growing up? I heard it. Likewise, we must ponder the scripture, attempting to expand our understanding of it and consider how it applies to our own experience in order for it to provide 
us with the highest benefit. Charles Spurgeon uh, called this process, the process of meditation, getting the word into our lives, the machine in which the raw material of knowledge is converted to its best use. It's the same as this author before said. Uh, Spurgeon showed particular concern for people who could recite the Bible, they had it memorized, but he didn't see it in their lives. Meditation is reflecting on the text until you get a sense of God saying something to you and then responding to him. And I know there are many here who do personal Bible study. That's a great habit to be in. Many of you have the habit of devotional time, a devotional daily time with God. That's a great habit to be in. Do not change that habit. You have, a, 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 you have the habit of regular, regularly praying. That's great. Keep that up. We say that, say that, and we have a, a tendency to say, I know I do sometimes. Okay, I'm, I've got my Bible study done. Now I'm going to get out my prayer list, and I'm going to pray for the people of the church. And I'm going to pray for my family, friends that don't know the Lord. I'm going to pray that. And there's not an association between the two. There's no connection between my Bible study and my prayer. It would be like a little bit like saying, look, there's water, but never drinking from it. At least we need to ask ourselves, what is God trying to say to me through his word? And then talk to him about it. And if we stay with that subject and talk to him about what he is speaking to us in his word, you know it will impact your life. And so you've got this on your outline. Meditation is not Bible study, nor is it a prayer list, but it is a bridge between the two. You can meditate when you're studying the Bible. If you study and you're, you're listening with your heart and you talk to God about what he's talking to you about. In other words, when you study the Bible, don't do it in a detached way. Listen. Reflect. Think deeply about what you're reading. Meditate. Do you remember when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush? Moses walked over to the bush and God said, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Moses was close to the heart of God. God spoke to Moses, not because he had some special skills, but because he was ready to listen to God. Are you ready to listen to God? Meditation is, is like making your Bible and the, the time that you spend in the word like a burning bush for you. So that you're amazed at the place where you're at. It's like holy ground as you meditate on God's word. And you learn mission and you learn joy. And so meditation is going beyond study. And, and we're to meditate, it says, on the law. And then you have this on the, on the outline. The law of the Lord refers to the whole of Scripture as authoritative. When you accept God's word as authority, then Scripture moves you from being, uh, Scripture moves from just being a text that you're reading to being a word of God to you. 
And so, again, on your outline, to meditate can mean several things. It can mean to enjoy, to repeat it, to work it out, to imagine. Martin Luther gave some helpful questions that we should ask of every text that really leads to meditating on those texts. First of all, the teaching, what does the passage say? And then we adore God. We think, how great is a God who would say this? Like Psalm 1, we have a delightful God. We have a a God who speaks to us. We have a God we can know. And confession, I understand where I fall short. I I look at, take the truth of Psalm 1, verse 1, and I say, Lord, I confess to you, here's where I'm at. And and I, I, I watch him deliver me. And so that leads to supplication. I turn it into prayer. Lord, make me a tree. I feel like chaff. I want to be a tree. I want my roots to go down deep in you. And so to meditate on God's word until my heart is energized by the word. I do it in a disciplined way. I do it until there's fruit in my life. I do it until there's calm. That's what I need. And when do I meditate? Verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates day and night. He's not saying we do it 24-7. He's saying we do it deliberately in a disciplined way. We do it with intentionality. I do it during the day and I, I do it at night. And how long will it take for my relationship with God to deepen? Well, how long does it take for roots to grow? It might take a while. They don't grow overnight. It, 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 that's why it's a discipline. That's why we call it a discipline. And if you think about it, and this is again on your outline, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus meditating on the law and then teaching us the law. The law says you shouldn't kill. Jesus says, as he's reflecting on it and teaching uh, teaching us about it, he says, if you look at another human being and you say fool or you're resentful to someone or you refuse to offer forgiveness to someone, you're murdering them. And we say, wow, that's, that's me, Lord. I've, I've been guilty of that. And it leads us to despair, but it points us to Jesus. And the mark of a man or a woman of God is that they, they love to have God come into their life and tell them how to live. That's Meditation. Wouldn't it be nice if we always had that response to God? Who could ever do that all the time? We can't do it perfectly all the time. But Jesus did. Jesus was so saturated with the word of God that he did, what he did was an an outworking of his meditation. He is the word made flesh. And if you believe in God's love and God's patience and God's wisdom, look at Jesus and his love and his patience and his wisdom. Jesus, if you will, is the ultimate meditation of God. And so we meditate on God and, and what he's done for us and who he is to us. And we'll get that growth as we surrender to him. So do you meditate on God's word? 
So I want to get practical for a bit and, and give you some suggestions for practicing the discipline of biblical meditation. So you've got them on your outline. First, ask God to meet you in scripture. We can pray, and maybe I don't know what I'm doing, Lord, about a lot of things, but I just know you are what I want. And I'm seeking after you. I'm thirsting after you, like it says in Psalm 42. And I'm open to the possibility that God is really speaking to me through his word, because he is. And I read the Bible with a, that's number two, I read the Bible with a repentant spirit. I read the Bible with a vulnerable heart. I'm, I'm, I'm a readiness to surrender everything, turn it all over to him. So I read it slowly. That's number three. I meditate on a fairly brief passage in scripture, a narrative. I just, so look at the next, next quote on your outline. If you read quickly, it will benefit you little. You will be like a bee that merely skims the surface of a flower. Instead, in this new way of reading with prayer, meditation, you must become as the bee who penetrates into the depths of the flower. You plunge deeply within to remove its deepest nectar. So you immerse yourself in this short passage, maybe just a few verses. Much better to read just a few than to read and, and let it sink in deeply than to read 10 chapters. Read it slowly. Read it in the way that you would read a letter from a friend that you hadn't heard from in years. Certain words may stand out. Allow those words to sink in deeply into your heart. And the question behind such reading is, God, what do you want to say to me in this moment? So whether it's a verse or a phrase or a word, you stick with it as long as it takes to learn what you need to learn. You keep pressing it down in your life until it catches fire. Number four, the goal is not for us to get through the scriptures. The goal is to get the scriptures through us. Here's the way one author put it. The goal is not knowledge. Take any person you know whose knowledge of the Bible is, say, 10 times greater than the average unchurched person. Then ask yourself if this person is 10 times more loving, 10 times more patient, 10 times more joyful than the average unchurched person. We're looking for life change, not head knowledge. Knowledge about the Bible is, it's, a, it's a great good. It's ind indispensable. But the goal is not knowledge. Knowledge by itself does not lead to spiritual transformation. And while knowledge is vital, while knowledge is, is something that's to be basically prized, there, there are some dangers to knowledge. Paul says it like this in, in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge can demolish humility. And that's what we need. When we look at Jesus, we see humility. You know, the term know-it-all is never used as a compliment. Number five, take one thought or one verse with you through the day. Don't just think about it for five minutes. Take it through the day with you. 
Spend time with it. That's an advantage of memorizing it because you can keep it. You don't have to look it up every time and read it. You can memorize it. It's with you. The next thing on your outline, we can't meditate fast. One psychologist who was trying to get his patients to slow down said, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. Slow down. During Old Testament times, there were no courses in speed meditation. Meditate 700 words a minute with 90% comprehension. Didn't exist. Meditation is important enough to be mentioned over 50 times in the Old Testament. An example of the idea of meditation, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. For one day, live with those words that you've meditated on, that you've read, that you've memorized. Let your mind continually return to them. Maybe you could pray something like this. Today, as best as I can, I'm going to be still, Lord. I'm I'm not going to chatter thoughtlessly. I will remember that I don't have to defend myself or make sure that people think of me in the way I want them to think of me. Today, I don't want to have to get my way. Today, before I make decisions, I will try to listen to your voice, Lord. Today, I'm not going to be tossed around by anxiety or anger. I will take those feelings as prompts from the Holy Spirit to listen first, to listen to what I've read, to make it come alive in my life. And in each of those situations, I will ask God, how would you like me to respond? And I will live in stillness. Do you know what it's like to be still? Do you know how the people around you might really appreciate it if you were still for a day? And then sixth, allow this thought to become part of your memory. Memorizing the scripture is one of the most powerful means of transforming our minds. And as with meditation, memorization is just a means to an end, to get to know Jesus. I love Jeremiah 29, 13. In one version it says, when you come looking for me, God says you'll find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and you want it more than anything else, I'll make sure that you won't be disappointed. Wow, what a great promise. Jeremiah 29. And if you feel more like a sapling tree today than a, than a tree that's getting blown over or a tree that's getting blown over in a storm and not like the tree of, of Psalm 1, then God says this. God says to you, find your delight in me. Find your delight in my word. Meditate on it day and night and let it so fill you with the streams of living water that you will in time know me deeply. The good news is Jesus preached it is not about minimal entrance requirements to get you into heaven. It's about deepening your glorious redemption, making it come alive in your life. It's like saying it's morphing time. So I want to give you an assignment. I don't usually get to do this on a Sunday morning, but the assignment is to follow these last six suggestions. Take a passage, any passage. Take Psalm 1. 
We're not gonna go through all the Psalms in order, but next week we are doing Psalm 2. And so do it with Psalm 2. Meditate on it. Jesus is the true righteous man of Psalm 1. God blessed him and prospered him as our sinless savior. And if you belong to him, the blessings of Psalm 1 are yours in Christ. What a great pattern. That's true blessedness. And if you don't know that, you're invited to receive him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we're drawing on what your son did in our lives. And there are some here who have never even put their roots in Jesus. There are some here maybe who have who've never seen Jesus as the one who took their place and died for them. And until that happens, the law will just be a tutor for us. It will just lead us to eternal despair. But it's there to point us to Jesus. And most of us have planted by the new birth near streams of water, but we don't seem to know how to access that. And we're still worried and we're still anxious and we're still resentful. We're still unforgiving. And these things still aren't as important and as real in our lives as they ought to be, the truths of your word. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. You know, God's word tells us that we have the power of, uh, for extraordinary change by the power of the Holy Spirit as we practice meditation. So to remind us of this, um, I wanna, I, I'm going to say it's morphing time, and you're going to reply with, we shall morph indeed. <laughs> you ready? It's morphing time. We shall morph indeed. Amen. So from Psalm 112, praise the Lord, hallelujah, blessed, fortunate, prosperous, and favored by God is the one who fears the Lord with awe-inspired reverence and worships him with obedience, who delights greatly in his commandments. God bless you. Have a great day. Thanks for being here. Please greet the folks around you before you leave.